Hello and welcome to podcast number 10 for English 264 Online. This episode is about Alfred Lord Tennyson, the preeminent English poet of the Victorian period. Tennyson was in many ways as influential on his period as Wordsworth was on his, and like Wordsworth, he was selected as the Poet Laureate, or the official court poet of England. Tennyson was born in 1809 to a large family. He had six brothers and four sisters, and his father had been disinherited by his father, so that he did not get a title and an estate, and instead had to settle for a position in the clergy in the Church of England, which he always resented, and from which he'd never recovered. And this general brooding melancholy and alcoholism of Tennyson's father, part of what was referred to as the black blood of the Tennysons. Many of the Tennyson family were prone to addictive or depressive personalities. Tennyson had one brother who was an alcoholic, another who was an opium addict, uh, another who was institutionalized, and Tennyson himself was prone to depression and died of cirrhosis of the liver at the age of 83. Private man, uh, but a very public poet, his personality tended to be uh, introverted and withdrawn, nevertheless, um, being a poet in England, and particularly being the poet laureate, demanded of him a certain degree of extroverted behavior, um, and this balance between the two, between his, uh, his own private thoughts and his felt duty as a public figure, produces very interesting poetry for him. He attended Oxford University as a young man, and there became part of a group of intellectuals and, and other students um, known as the Apostles, one of whom, Arthur Henry Hallam, became his closest friend and also his closest um, supporter. Hallam encouraged him in his poetry. Um, Hallam also became engaged to uh, one of Tennyson's sisters. Upon graduation from college, Hallam, who showed a tremendous degree of promise as perhaps going into the public service, uh, becoming one of the leaders of society. He died very suddenly in Vienna, Austria, while on the tour of, of Europe, of the continent, after his graduation, uh, apparently of a cerebral hemorrhage, although it's not exactly clear what the cause of death was. And this event was a shattering and traumatic occurrence for Tennyson. Hallam was Tennyson's friend, his mentor, his advisor, his supporter, his future brother-in-law, and suddenly that support system was gone, and that combined with the fairly harsh critical reception of Tennyson's first volumes of poetry contributed to his uh, ten years of silence in which he did not write poetry or did not publish poetry again, uh, but during that time he was busy writing, both revising his previous works, as we'll look at with The Lady of Shalott, and composing In Memoriam, his elegy for Hallam, which became his greatest work, and the work which really brought to him his greatest public acclaim. His publication of In Memoriam in 1850 marked the turning point in his life. Before this point, he had not been a particularly successful poet or a particularly popular one. Um, most, much of his earlier poetry had been very Keatsian in influence, and he hadn't really found his own voice yet. Uh, in 1850, with the publication of In Memoriam, he reached a good deal of critical success, it enabled him to see himself as supporting himself as a poet for the first time, and that enabled him to get married. He had been engaged for some ten years to Emily Selwood, but did not feel able to marry her until he was able to support himself. He also received acclaim for this poem. Critics were beginning to call him one of the greatest poets in England, and so in 1850, 
when William Wordsworth, the current poet laureate, died, there was a necessity to appoint a new one, and in large part because of immemorium, Tennyson was selected for that role. Tennyson is perhaps best known for his ear, that is, his ability to create musical-sounding verse, employing words and combinations of sounds that go well together and create a certain effect. And uh, I wanted to begin with his poem, The Lady of Shalott, both to give an example of that, uh, the lyrical quality of his verse, and also to talk about uh, how he achieved it. I'd like to begin by playing you a recording of The Lady of Shalott, performed by Lorena McKinnett who has uh, adopted the poem to music. Here is her recording of the first stanza of the poem. On neither side the beaver night Long fields of barley and of rye That clothe the world and meet the sky Through the field the road Down the people go, gazing where the lilies blow, round an island there below, the island of Shalott. I hope you noticed the difficulty of the rhyme scheme for this poem. The rhyme scheme for the Lady of Shalott is A A A A B C C C B, where the B rhyme in every stanza is some combination of Camelot or Shalot, and um, this is extremely uh, challenging for a, a short stanza form to be carried out over such a long period of time. So he needs to be able to construct the first four lines of the stanza um, to create a, a unified sound employing the same rhyme with fairly short lines, and the refrain of Camelot and Shalot has to be able to seem naturally fitted into the, the context of each stanza. And that's extremely challenging, uh, and the fact that he's able to carry it off, and carry it off in a way in which it doesn't seem awkward, is a tribute to his, his talent and to his, his ear. Um, but note from the reading, there's an e-text for how this poem originally appeared in 1832, as opposed to 1842, which is the version we have in our book. The 1832 version was quite different, uh, particularly the first stanza. Note that in the first stanza in the original version, the C rhyme, um, after the first refrain, runs, The yellow-leaved water-lily, the green-sheathed daffodilly, trembled in the water chilly round about Shalott. And I, I hope you'll see that this rhyme that he's found himself tied into is rather silly, and it also is not nearly as resonant, not nearly as impressive as the rhyming on go, blow, and below. Um, those sounds use a very open-throated vowel sound, that can sing out and resonate, whereas lily, dilly, and chilly uh, causes a very constrictive sound in the throat and is weakened by a multisyllabic rhyme as opposed to the monosyllabic go, blow, and below. And this is typical, perhaps, of um, Tennyson's greater attention to the sound as well as the sense of his poetry as he developed it during that ten years of silence during which he was not publishing. This poem is also interesting for its depiction of the Lady of Shalott, a, a figure from Arthurian legend uh, who, at least according to the, the construct of this poem, is an artist, uh, a weaver of tapestries, who is imprisoned in a tower uh, in which she can work uh, unimpeded by the world around her, 
uh, as long as she stays uh, disconnected from the world. She has a mirror in her tower through which she can see uh, out the window of her tower as the world goes by. Um, and she sees the parade of, of society, high and low, male and female, young and old, going down to Camelot. Um, but it is not until she sees a couple who are getting married that she first speaks and also first expresses her dissatisfaction with her position, um, in which she says, I am, half sick, I am half sick of shadows, said the Lady of Shalat. Uh, and that comment by her sets up the catastrophe uh, as Lancelot rides by in section 3, now, as you may know from Arthurian legend, Lancelot was celebrated both as the greatest knight of Arthur's court, the most chivalric, the greatest warrior, but he was also the cause of the downfall of Camelot uh, in his adulterous affair with Queen Guinevere. Uh, when that became public, it led to a conflict between the knights, it led to a falling out between Arthur and Lancelot, and eventually the destruction of Arthur's England. So Lancelot has a, a dual role and in this particular poem, um, he does as well. He, he comes riding up. Uh, he's brilliant and shining and, and glittering. Um, he sings Tiralira and catches her attention. She looks down from her tower, sees him, and the curse comes upon her. She can no longer create. She can no longer live. And she dies singing in, in her boat, uh, singing her death song, floating down to Camelot. Yet while Lancelot was the cause of her death, at least inadvertently as it may be, he's also the last word in the poem. And as her corpse floats into Camelot, um, all the residents of Camelot, except for Lancelot, uh, show fear, show um, concern, show anxiety over this sign. But the poem ends, But Lancelot mused a little space. He said, She has a lovely face. God in his mercy lend her grace, the Lady of Shalott compare this ending with the original ending of the poem in the 1832 version uh, in, the, in the handout and the e-text reading assignment the original ending was not Lancelot speaking but the Lady of Shalott's note which the well-fed wits at Camelot read the web was woven curiously the charm is broken utterly draw near and fear not this is I the Lady of Shalott and critics not surprisingly have uh, often debated these two endings to determine which they think is preferable. Is it better for the Lady of Shalott to have, to, to get the last word, to, to have her own analysis of the, of the situation? Others would see it preferable to have Lancelot, the inadvertent cause of her death, uh, at least to see her and to recognize her, even though he still doesn't know what cause he is, uh, he still does not know what he has done. And for him to say, God, God in his mercy lend her grace, um, they might compare that to the ancient mariner blessing the sea snakes unaware, uh, the act which saves him, in an act of grace which bodes well for his own soul. Another relatively early poem by Tennyson, which has inspired a great deal of critical attention, is the poem Ulysses, uh, on page 593 and 594. This poem is an example of a genre that became very prominent in the Victorian period, known as the dramatic monologue where the speaker of the poem is specifically not the author, not to be confused with the author, but is in fact a character, um, often talking about a particular event, often to a particular audience. We'll see more of this particular genre when we get to Robert Browning, who wrote many of them. In a dramatic monologue, you are often 
not encouraged necessarily to agree with everything that the speaker says. Uh, although you are seeing the world through that person's eyes, you are following that person's thought processes, uh, you are still allowed to get some distance, some objectivity, some degree of judgment is involved along with uh, the sympathy that you might feel um, in experiencing another person's perspective. And that is certainly the case in Ulysses. Uh, Ulysses, the, the Roman name for Odysseus, the Greek hero of the Trojan War and the Odyssey, has in this poem returned from his adventures as recounted by Homer in those two epics, and is now back home, uh, again king of Ithaca, uh, again reunited with Penelope, his faithful wife, and we find him here bored, um, tired of, of this life, of, of being an idle king, uh, yearning again for adventures, for, for more great deeds to do before his death eventually brings it into his life. And, and certainly a question that should come from your reading of it is, to what extent he's a hero in, in wanting to achieve more, and to what extent is he merely being selfish and, and wanting to desert all that he's returned to and, and return back to that more glamorous and more self-centered life of a hero. The poem begins very abruptly with Ulysses declaiming to an unknown auditor, it little profits that an idle king, by this still hearth, among these barren crags, matched with an aged wife, I meet and dole unequal laws unto a savage race that hoard and sleep and feed and know not me. Uh, a couple of points that a reader might, might notice here, um, particularly the term profit, which gives a, a certain capitalist motive to his actions, um, certain utilitarian motive to his actions, unexpected for a, a Greek hero. Second, his reference to being matched with an aged wife, Penelope notably faithful for 20 years while he was away uh, at the Trojan War and, and then trying to return home. Uh, he was by no means faithful on that trip, and although she might be an aged wife, he's certainly an aged husband as well. And this general sense of resentment and dissatisfaction with his life. Uh, and his focus on, on me, it's always me, 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 apparently, for Ulysses. On the other hand, other statements he makes seem much more positive and seem designed much more to gain the approval of the reader. Uh, for example, he says on line 23, How dull it is to pause, to make an end, to rust unburnished, not to shine in use, as though to breathe were life. Life piled on life were all too little, and of one to me little remains, but every hour is saved from that eternal silence, something more, a bringer of new things, and vile it were for some three sons to store and hoard myself, and this gray spirit yearning in desire to follow knowledge like a sinking star beyond the utmost bound of human thought. His sense that life is more than mere breath, that life is the accomplishments and, and not merely existence, do seem to win the approval of readers, and, and do seem worthy of of admiration and, and understanding on the part of the reader. And it is typical of dramatic monologues to contain both, um, to put you in the mindset of a particular character. Um, in, in part, this comes from the romantic's concern with particular perception and states of consciousness, um, probably also indebted to some extent. Shakespeare's soliloquies, where characters will state their inner views, their inner feelings to the audience in a very direct fashion. But the dramatic monologue itself is a peculiarly Victorian creation. Finally, the poem ends with a, a rousing speech to his fellow sailors to sail off on this new voyage of discovery. And he ends, 
Come, my friends, tis not too late to seek a newer world. Push off, and sitting well in order, smite the sounding furrows. For my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset, and the baths of all the western stars, until I die. It may be that the gulfs will wash us down. It may be we shall touch the happy isles, and see the great Achilles whom we knew. Though much is taken, much abides. And though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. This ending seems um, extremely heroic, extremely positive, unless you know the backstory of, uh, of Ulysses, or at least the sequel of Ulysses, as depicted in Dante's Inferno, uh, in that epic poem, Dante encounters Ulysses in hell, and it turns out that on his last voyage, the ship didn't make it out of the harbor before it sank and drowned all on board. And so whether Tennyson knows of, or whether Tennyson expects the reader to know of Dante's ending for Ulysses matters in terms of how you interpret this poem. It seems likely that Tennyson certainly did know about it. It's also, I think, significant that he wrote this poem in 1833, shortly after the death of Hallam, when he was still trying to come to terms with it, still trying to figure out what direction his life should take afterwards. And it, although in immemorium you get a general sense of um, melancholy, of depression, of trying to go through the phases of grief and, and uh, recovery, in this poem, it's almost as if he's trying to, on the one hand, find a new model for directions for his life, and on the other hand, point out the limitations of that direction uh, through a subversive account of this heroic and egocentric perspective. There are many wonderful poems in Tennyson that certainly bear a great deal of attention and analysis, but I want to end on The Charge of the Light Brigade, which is towards the end of our reading assignments. Uh, in particular, in this poem, because it uh, continues the the theme that I've been discussing of Tennyson as a great poet of ambiguity, uh, a poet who is able to present intention to opposite perspectives and, and to play one off of against the other, uh, a poet of ambiguity who the reader can um, can see from a number of perspectives that uh, different people can read Tennyson and draw very different conclusions from him, depending on what emphasis they put on particular lines. In The Charge of the Light Brigade, uh, it's a poem based on a, a current event after he was Poet Laureate uh, and after England had become involved in the Crimean War, uh, a war against Russia, uh, primarily in battles on the Crimean Peninsula and the Black Sea. And this um, particular poem commemorates an event which was one of the great military blunders of, of the 19th century, um, in which a light cavalry brigade, so a, a group of cavalry soldiers generally used for skirmishing and for reconnaissance and scouting, were ordered to charge against uh, an, a fortified gun emplacement, artillery emplacement on the Russian side, again, uh, across an open field. And they did follow the orders, they, they did charge the, uh, the fortifications, um, and most of the group, most of the soldiers died. Of the 600 soldiers who made the charge, more than 400 were killed. Tennyson read about this event in the newspaper, and within a couple of days after the initial uh, news broke, 
wrote this poem both to commemorate the soldiers' bravery in following this order, and also perhaps to implicate the, the stupidity of the action which led to it. And you can read this poem um, in many ways as, as a pro-military, pro-soldier poem, or as an anti-war poem. And either, either interpretation can be supported by the text. I also want to play for you, um, as part of this podcast, a recording made of Tennyson reading an excerpt from this poem uh, very, very late in his life. Thomas Edison invented the phonograph, uh, the wax cylinder phonograph, and he went to England to try to record some famous people and also to sell lots of phonograph machines. One of the people he recorded was Tennyson, reading from this poem. Uh, it's always important when you hear a poet read his own works to, to hear the emphasis, to hear the, the pacing, uh, to hear the, the tone of voice, and uh, also particularly for poets of an earlier century, to hear the style of declamation, particularly with Tennyson, because sound and sense are so important for him. Over the light brigade, charge for the country's head, into the valley of death, road Over the light brigade, was there an undismayed, not so the soldier knew someone of London. There's not to make reply, there's not to reason why, there's but to do and die. Into the valley of death, death, roads of the country. Cannon to right of them, cannon to left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered. Stormed out with shot and shell, boldly they rode and well. Into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell, roads of the in this admittedly lo-fi recording, I hope you'll notice a number of qualities of his voice, um, particularly um, his pacing. It's very slow, long pauses in between sections, uh, particularly the refrain, Road the 600, which appears over in, again in each of the sections, tends to be not emphasized, but downplayed. Uh, the volume drops quite a bit on that particular phrase. Um, and also note the way he, he draws out the vowel sounds, uh, again characteristic of his, his uh, particular style, and indicating that those sounds are important to him. I think the last stanza in this poem, although we do not get to hear Tennyson read it, and it's in fact astonishing to me that we can hear Tennyson's voice at all, and, and it's um, you know, a wonder of, of technology that, that was recorded in that time. Um, the last stanza... When can their glory fade? Oh, the wild charge they made, all the world wondered. Honor the charge they made. Honor the light brigade, noble 600. I think uh, that sums up to some extent one thesis in this poem, which is uh, supporting the troops, to use the, the current phrase. Um, that they knew it was a mistake. They, they knew it was um, militarily impossible for them to take that artillery emplacement um, nevertheless, they did it without asking questions, with, with a great deal of courage, uh, sacrificing their lives because it was their duty. And honoring their bravery, 
honoring their glory, uh, which comes from their uh, selflessness. On the other hand, an earlier passage in the poem emphasizes a different part, uh, particularly um, someone had blundered. And in, in the original draft of this poem, he actually gave the name of the general who had given the order, the name of the general who had blundered. Uh, in a later edition for publication, he dropped that, uh, thinking perhaps it was too specific. Uh, maybe the poem would be more universal if that were dropped. Um, but this poem both shows the uh, the mixed feelings, which are typical of, of Tennyson, and also his movement from being a very private person, uh, in memoriam, one of the great explorations of the grieving process and, and very private emotions. And in this poem, a very public figure, um, trying to come to terms with a, a news item and present it in a way that would shape the public perception of it. Um, he thought it was his duty as the Poet Laureate to comment on, on current events of the day. And this is an example of him doing that to, to marvelous effect. Although the 20th century poets tended to distance themselves from Tennyson, trying to get out from under his influence, in the same way that perhaps the second generation of romantics can be seen as distancing themselves from Wordsworth, or as the first generation of romantics distanced themselves from the 18th century poets like Dryden and, and Pope, um, W. H. Auden said of Tennyson that he was the stupidest poet in English literature, that he knew everything about uh, melancholy and nothing about anything else, and, and I think that's certainly an unfair statement to make. Um, Tennyson generally impresses me with uh, his attempt to think and reason through and come to terms with and feel emotionally the different aspects of the events of the day, of both of the human heart and of the, the Victorian times in which he lived. And in, in Memoriam, for example, uh, he tries to, to introduce into poetry new theories in science and geology um, and the new the crisis of faith that was uh, rampant and, and almost a cliche of the Victorian period. Um, so I, I think he's a poet who thinks quite a bit, and I look forward to seeing what you have to say about him in your blog entries as you uh, respond and react to particular poems. As I've done in this podcast, I certainly encourage you uh, to take particular poems and dig deeper into them, uh, even one or two sections of In Memoriam would be plenty for uh, um, one of your entries. Don't feel like you have to sum up everything Tennyson said because he had a very long career of uh, uh, widely varying approaches to poetry. That's all for this evening. Good night. This is how